Thank you, Karen. Good evening, everyone. Let's get this across. Uh, I wonder, it's really good to see you, by the way. Uh, I wonder, has anybody ever heard of this guy? Anybody ever come across him? One or two people? Uh, he was uh, one of the 37 passengers on board United Airlines Flight 93 on the 11th of September 2001, a flight that was hijacked by four terrorists and never actually reached its intended target. And when the passengers were forced to the back of the plane, this guy made a phone call to a girl called Lisa Jefferson, a supervisor at Verisone Airphone. And Lisa Jefferson listened in total disbelief as Todd Beamer described the horror of the unfolding events on board that 757 aircraft. And as she later recalled that conversation with this guy, she said this, Physically, I felt ill and powerless. I wanted to do more to help. I prayed silently as I heard profoundly disturbing sounds coming from the plane's camera. I finally realized they were the blood-curdling screams of the passengers aboard Flight 93, crying out for their lives. I'll carry those sounds to my grave. And then what happened next is poignant. Todd Beamer asked Lisa Jefferson to say the Lord's Prayer with him. And if you've seen the movie, how many people have seen United 93? Quite a few. Well, there is a brief clip of two passengers, is the way they depict it, reciting the Lord's Prayer together. And apparently this guy was a committed Christian who had a bookmark in his Tom Clancy novel that had the Lord's Prayer on it that he took on board with him to read during the flight. And after praying the Lord's Prayer, he is then reported to have said, Jesus, help me. As along with other passengers, he challenged the hijackers, forcing the plane to crash, killing everyone on board, but probably, as we all know, saving hundreds of others. And his story has been widely circulated. And as a result of that story, back in 2001, there was, at that time, and still continues to be, quite a renewed interest in the Lord's Prayer. And this is going to be our focus here at Windsor for the next uh, seven weeks. One of, uh, one of my enduring memories of primary school, I, I'm not someone who's got a great memory when it comes to thinking back to primary school. I love it whenever people are able to recall lots of stories of when they were younger. I must admit I can't. But one of my enduring memories of primary school is standing in the assembly hall every single morning at that stage and saying the Lord's Prayer. I, I'm sure there are lots of us here who could say it off by heart. But I hope that through this new series, we can rediscover what has been described as the most perfect prayer for imperfect people. Prayer is our spiritual lifeline as Christians. Nothing is more important. We were thinking about that last week when Alan was here. Nothing is more important. And yet, what I discover is this, that nothing is more important to maintain as a consistent prayer life. So many people, Christians, struggle to maintain a consistent prayer life. And let me just lay down a bit of a challenge right from the word go that as we start this new series, can I encourage you, and maybe some of you already do this, but can I encourage you to consider using the Lord's Prayer 
or the framework of this prayer, and we'll come to exactly what that means in a moment, as a daily prayer exercise between now and the end of November when we finish this new teaching series. And if you're able to be here on Sunday nights, that would help. But if you're not, then let me just offer you that as one idea to take away. And I'll explain why I believe it's really, really important that we rediscover this prayer. As I say, many of you maybe do use it on a regular basis, but my own personal experience is it's not something I particularly turn to that frequently. We've called this uh, series 57 Prayer. And that's because this prayer contains a mere 57 words in the original Greek in Matthew's Gospel. The prayer actually appears twice in our New Testament. There's in Matthew's Gospel, there's in Luke's Gospel, although Luke has a slightly condensed version. He actually has only 38 words. And there's all sorts of different reasons people have as to why he only records 38 words, but we'll not go into that. The brilliant thing about this prayer is that it has the potential to expand our understanding of God. It's it's a great prayer to use to fuel our prayer lives. But one of the really brilliant advantages of it is that it can expand our understanding of God. Who God is, what God is like. And so every Sunday evening, what we're going to do is we're going to take a different phrase from the prayer. We're going to unpack it. We're going to look at it. And having worked our way through virtually every single sentence in that prayer, we will discover more about the fatherhood of God, the holiness of God, the kingdom of God, the will of God, the provision of God, the forgiveness of God, and the protection of God. And so if, if you're someone who recognizes that your prayer life could do with a little bit of revitalizing, or if your concept of God needs to be enlarged, and something I said this morning was that that is a constant need all of us have, is that our vision of God would continually increase, then I want to suggest that this is a significant prayer to commit yourself to. And that's a choice, obviously, but to commit yourself to during the next couple of months and beyond. Let me just, uh, before we dive into this, pick up on the idea of this being seen as a template for prayer. Because what I'm not necessarily suggesting is that you just use the prayer word for word, although if you do that, that's fine, and lots of people do it. But what I want to suggest is that you use the framework of this prayer, and again, I'll, I'll explain this more in a minute, to direct and dictate your daily prayer time. Someone has said that we are not tied to its words, but we are tied to its basic content. And what that means is that as a template, it identifies the vital topics that we should be covering in prayer. And the order in which they appear act as a great guide to show us what are the priorities of prayer. Do you ever have the experience where you sit down to pray, or you go for a walk to pray, or maybe you jump in the car and go for a drive, that's how you pray. And it's hard sometimes to know, where do I actually begin? Or where do I go with this? Well, the thing about the Lord's Prayer is that it provides direction. Really great direction in our praying. And it also has this ability to limit wordiness. Or vagueness in our prayer. Or do you ever wonder, this is one of the things that I speak to a number of people about. A number of people often ask, how do you know you're getting it right in prayer? Can you know that? Can you know whether our our praying is pleasing to a living God? Well for me, in this prayer, 
we find Jesus explicitly telling us, here's how to get it right. Here's a great way to get prayer right. So as I say, let me encourage you to use it as word for word over the next 49 days. Or to use it as a template for your daily prayers. And as we go through this, hopefully that will all become clearer. Derek Prime makes the point that like a mould, like a mould, the Lord's Prayer is there to actually shape our lives. But before we get our teeth in this, let me ask you a question. What is the difference between prayers and requests? What is the difference between prayers and requests or prayers and supplications? Because let me read you from Ephesians chapter 6. It says, pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. So what is the difference between the two? Okay, what's the difference between the two? Well, I must have never really thought of this before until I came across this thought during my preparation, which I found really helpful. Requests relate to urgent matters. An emergency or a crisis that you need to pray into for a specific period of time. Whereas prayers stand for matters of daily concern. In other words, we do need to pray for the topics raised in the Lord's Prayer on a constant basis. They don't come and go. Requests do. Prayers don't. Now as we turn to the actual wording, if you want to turn, if you have a Bible with you, to Luke chapter 11, just to look at the context for Jesus giving this prayer. Because it's really important, because what we read in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, is one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. And I know this is something we've said time and time again here, but one of the most striking features of Jesus' life is that he lived a prayer-filled life. Jesus often slipped away to pray. He was, again, something we've said before, he was a true contemplative. Prayer threaded its way through Jesus' life. Jesus had this very definite rhythm in life. A rhythm where he would withdraw to be alone with his Father and then out of that place of withdrawal he would engage to be with people, crowds of people. He proactively sought solitude in order to enjoy intimacy with his Father. But then from that place of intimacy, from that place of refreshment, from that place of renewal, Jesus was then able to engage with people. Jesus realised and modelled the importance of prayer. And I do believe that many of us, and I know many of you have shared this with me, that you long to live a more contemplative life. That in the midst of the busyness that we all experience, in the midst of the mayhem, in the midst of the noise, and in the midst of all the demands that are on our time and for our attention, that so many of us just crave silence and solitude, and yet we find it so difficult to find. And when we do find it, we struggle to know how to live in that place. And in my own devotions recently, I came across this reflection. There is a contemplative in all of us, almost strangled, but still alive, who craves quiet enjoyment of the now and longs to touch the seamless garment of silence, which makes whole. Jesus was a contemplative. He prayed. Then we pick up Luke 11, verse 1. It says this, When Jesus finished praying, One of his disciples said to him, Lord, 
teach us to pray. And what I find fascinating is that this is the only thing that the first disciples are recorded to having asked Jesus to teach them. Lord, teach us to pray. There's no record of teach us to heal, teach us to counsel, teach us to lead, teach us to cast out demons, teach us to preach. Why is that? Was it because they saw that leading and counselling and healing and casting out and preaching, they all emerged from the relationship that Jesus had with his Father. And the key to that relationship was prayer. And as Jesus' own disciples observed the priority and the practice of prayer in their Master's life, I think they wanted to unlock the door into his life. And the way to unlock the door into his life was to cry, Lord, Teach us to pray. Because it seems to be that from that place of intimacy, from that place of solitude, from that time when you slip away to be with your Father, you are able to do all of these things. And therefore we want want you to show us the way. And I know that as someone who has been a Christian for years, I identify with that cry. Lord, Teach me to pray. And yet, I realize that when I cry that out to Jesus, that the answer comes back as the same answer the disciples received. And that is, here's how you should pray. And here's what you should say. In other words, how do you pray? Will you learn to pray by actually praying? I I used to be someone more and more who, who loved to discover the latest book on prayer, for example, or on whatever. And particularly if it said, here, look, listen, this is a great idea, this is a great way to pray. And what I've discovered more and more is, I've just got to get down to the holy habit, the spiritual discipline of praying. I need to diary it in. It was Thomas Merton who said, the only way to learn to pray is to pray. And so Luke 11 verse 2 says, Jesus said to them, well, when you pray, here's what you should say. And then outpours what we call the Lord's Prayer from his lips. And in the few moments left, what I want to do is I want to unpack the first phrase. Our Father in heaven. And I want to just break it down by looking at this word our, and then Father, and then this idea of in heaven. To start with, there is a very corporate dimension to this prayer. It is our Father. It is give us. It is forgive us. It is lead us. It is deliver us. And therefore this is why it was the practice of the early church that whenever they met together they prayed this together because this was, this is a family prayer. And somebody has written this rather clever poem just to remind us that this is not a prayer for rugged individuals. You cannot say the Lord's prayer and even once say I You cannot say the Lord's Prayer and even once say my. Nor can you pray the Lord's Prayer and not pray for another. For when you ask for daily bread, you must include your brother. For others are included in each and every plea from the beginning to the end of it. It never once says me. And in certain Christian traditions, I realize that praying this prayer together remains a key component of worship services. And for some reason we don't tend to use it that often. I am I'm not sure 
Have we ever said it together here? And certainly during my 10, 11 months here, I'm not sure we've ever used the Lord's Prayer corporately. But I would actually like us to do it right now, just to change our position, change the pace a wee bit. Uh, And we're going to use the words of of Matthew chapter 6. So please stand with me and let's just say the Lord's Prayer together. Because remember, this is a community prayer. It's our Father. So let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. And that's where it finishes in Matthew. Take your seat again. And of course we can. I'm not suggesting we don't use this prayer on our own. I've just suggested we do do that for the next seven weeks. But we do belong to a community. We belong to the family of God who is our Father. Our. But then, Father. And that was a title that Jesus introduced in a completely new way. And again, Karen's touched on this a wee bit. But this was introduced in a completely new way by Jesus to address God. Apparently God is referred to as Father 14 times in the Old Testament. But always with reference to the nation. And not to individuals. Jesus then breaks into our world. And he makes the fatherhood of God so essential to prayer. He calls God Father some 60 times in the Gospels. And as Karen said at the beginning, the reason for that was it speaks of intimacy. It is an awesome privilege to call the God who created this world Father. And one of the things that Alan Emerson spoke of last week was to see prayer as an invitation to intimacy. That we can now approach God with confidence because he has adopted us into his family. We are his children. John 1, to all who receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, God gave the right to become children of God. He's our Father, and therefore we can draw near. But sometimes the problem with this is the title itself. Because the the term Father conjures up all kinds of images and memories for certain people, and I realize that, and I appreciate that, and I know you've heard this said before. But it is a title that some of us deeply connect to our experience of our earthly father. And for many people in our society, and maybe in a group like this, there will be some people here, and it's one of these, or most of these words, that maybe spring to mind the minute you hear the word father. Absent, weak, distant, detached, disapproving, discouraging, abusive, manipulative, aggressive, demanding and the negative word associations could go on and for some they do and the result is that there are many people who do actually struggle with the reality of God as father and therefore they find it difficult to address him in such intimate terms and even for those of us who have had a a positive experience of father being modelled to us the fact is that we all know That our earthly fathers are just a pale reflection. A pale reflection of what our heavenly father is. Because our ultimate father is perfect and we're not. Is good and we're not always. 
is holy, is righteous, is just, is merciful, is loving, is forgiving, is generous, is kind, is for us. And he knows our needs and he delights to give us good gifts. And he makes or he gives promises for our encouragement. And therefore, we always need to grasp afresh, what does it mean to know God as my Father? And therefore, I just wanted to mention that because I don't underestimate the struggle that I know and I've had the experience of talking to people who just really, really do find. And I'm going to pick up on this phrase, Daddy, in a moment as well. Because again, I love it. And yet at the same time, there's something about it that jars with me. And I'll explain that why just as we close in a moment. So our Father. He is our Father. Our Father in heaven. And it's this recognition that ensures that we approach God, yes, with confidence because we are his child. But also with reverence. And that's a balance that's sometimes difficult to strike. And we all know that God is everywhere. And therefore, whenever we we use that phrase, our Father in heaven, there is, I think, this sense, yes, God dwells in heaven. God resides in high and lofty places of majesty and power and dominion where he is worshipped by myriads and myriads of angels. And the thing about the in heaven dimension of the prayer is that it maintains an upward look. It retains a proper perspective. We have the fatherly love of God on one hand and yet we have his transcendent greatness on the other. And and how do you balance that? Remember Matt Redman wrote a song called The Friendship and the Fear. How How do you get that balance? Between knowing God as a friend but also having a respect for God. The fatherhood of God demands our reverence. The term father in Aramaic is Abba. And as Carolyn said and rightly said, that the best translation often offered to us is something like daddy. The word that is used by small kids for their earthly fathers. However, I came across this recently and this has helped me and I offer it to you. It may help, it may not help. But one Oxford linguist has challenged that. James Barr has argued that Abba was not merely a word used by small children but that it was also the word that Jewish children used for their parents after they had grown up. In other words, Abba was a mature yet affectionate way for adults to speak to their fathers. And he goes on that in the New Testament, the Aramaic word Abba appears three times in our English New Testament. But in each case, it is immediately followed by the Greek word word pater, P-A-T-E-R. Pater is not the Greek word for daddy. And therefore, in order to make sure that our intimacy, and I'm just quoting him, with God does not become an excuse for immaturity. It says Abba Pater. And therefore the best way to translate Abba is Dear Father. Dearest Father. And for me, that expresses an intimacy with God while preserving his dignity. I just offer that to you. And so as we begin this prayer, and as we begin to use this prayer as a template, we start with an upward glance. We lift our eyes, we lift our hearts, we lift our minds to a God who longs for intimate friendship, who longs for relationship, who longs to commune with us, who longs to converse with us. 
But we also come to a dear Father who is in heaven. And therefore, yes, he deserves our adoration. He deserves our worship. He deserves his place. So we approach with confidence, yes, but also with reverence. And we don't draw near on our own. We draw near together. And that's why for me it is so important that the church meets to pray together. That we never lose the importance of corporate prayer. Of together coming before God and saying, Our Father, we need you. Your children need you as a family. And so as we journey through this prayer on Sunday evenings, my hope and prayer is that God may awaken, reawaken, reintroduce this prayer into our lives. Not just for times of crisis like Todd Beamer faced, but for daily discipleship. As we cry to Jesus, maybe once again, Lord, teach me to pray. Let me pray together. Father, we recognize that this is the only pattern prayer in a sense that your Son gave to us. And therefore we do acknowledge and recognize the importance of it. And I confess, God, it's not, a, it's not a prayer I often use. And yet, as a child of yours who often does seem to cry, Lord, teach me to pray. I would ask that you would reawaken this prayer in my life. And that as we, as a church, together as a community and as a family, journey through it, petition by petition, phrase by phrase, Help us to rediscover just the value, the beauty, and the gift that this prayer is. Help us to unwrap it. And help it to become something, if not already, very precious and special to us in our relationship with you. And so right at the beginning of this series, we acknowledge that you are our Father. And we approach you with confidence but we also approach you in reverence. In Jesus' name, amen.